Thank you. Okay, so in Luke 8, 11, um, Jesus is talking about a parable. And he starts talking about the seed that's thrown on the, on the different soils, right? And as I read that the other day, something really stuck out to me in light of the teaching that I'm about to give. This is kind of a prelude to that. And um, <clears throat> when I read that over again, and I've read it several times, right? I read it over again, but Luke, 11, Luke 8, 11 really stuck out to me. It said, the seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. Okay, so God, who is sovereign, who is Lord, who is supreme, who is sovereign and all authority, has an assumption. When he speaks, he wants us to hear and to believe. And so I got this vision for what you're looking at right here, when I read that, that in Luke 8, the seed is the word of God, which is either the logos, the written word of God, right, or the rhema word of God, the, the revelatory word of God that lines up with the word of God, right, the written word. However it comes, his assumption is, is that we as believers, as his children, right, because he said, my sheep hear my voice, right, and they follow me. And so God has an assumption that we're going to believe him. And when we believe him and the seed hits the soil of belief, there is a harvest that comes. But if the seed hits the soil of unbelief, there's also a, soil, a, a fruit that comes. And I'm just saying, as I, I was very convicted, as I looked over this list and went, oh, Lord, I feel much like the centurion that said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? Help my unbelief. Um, also in Matthew, or in uh, Mark 16, 9 through 20, um, <clears throat> Jesus, and it, Jesus is showing up after the resurrection, he shows up to his disciples, right? And it says, the, like I've, I've looked for it in other places, it's like other than um, Peter where Jesus says, hey, Satan, get behind me, you know? Peter, you're not speaking what I'm speaking. You're not believing. You're not in agreement, right? But in this particular scripture in Mark 16, it says, Jesus rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe. Even those who had seen him after he had risen. Listen, I don't know about you, but I do not want the rebuke of the Lord. <laughs> like, I really want to be a believer. Like, I, I really want to believe when he says what he says and he does what he does. I want to believe him. Um, <clears throat> what I've noticed in the church in general is that we don't have a knowing problem. We have a believing problem. Right. Like we know a lot. Like I could have quoted for you over and over again, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me. But for years in my relationship with Jesus, I didn't believe that he loved me. 
Like, I knew that he loved me. His word said it. But I wasn't believing that he loved me. Here's another example. I knew what God's word said about he calls me beautiful. But for years, when he would whisper in those intimate moments, hey, I adore you. You are beautiful to me. I literally would go, shut up. And just spin off in my own mind, in my own thinking of all the reasons why what God was telling me couldn't possibly be true. And what I was doing was letting the seed of God's word land in a soil of unbelief. And God wants to find those that will let the seed fall in the soil of belief. I'm going to erase this because we're going to move into something else. That was just bonus. That was bonus. Okay. Okay, so just hang there for a second. Okay, so Romans 4.18 says this. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without wavering in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. So experientially... He had no evidence that what God was saying to him was true. Right? That's where he's at right now. Yet, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were given were written not for him alone. Catch that. His belief was credited to him as righteousness, but it wasn't just for him, it's for us. But also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. See, I think a lot of times we think we're believing because we at one time in our life believed on Jesus and he's Lord. But that word is a, is a present tense. Believe, believing, keep believing, keep believing. Believe again, right? <clears throat> Romans 3.3 3 says, whether we believe God or not does not nullify God, does not nullify God's faithfulness says this, but what if some did ha not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. So whether we believe God or not does not affect his faithfulness to his own word, his, his uh, faithfulness to complete what he's started. 
whether we choose to believe him or not. He is God. What he says, he will do. Um, <clears throat> okay. So uh, in Proverbs 23, 7, as a man believes in his heart, so he is. We are what we believe, whether we realize it or not. Our beliefs form us into the person we believe we are. My beliefs will fuel my actions. So here's what I want to say. As we, believe, as we have these thoughts and these beliefs that, that filter through our life, right, there are several avenues and venues that these come from. Like, we live in a world that there's just life experiences. There's childhood hurts. There's traumas. There's negative experience. There's lack. Not to mention the teenage years, right, where further con uh, contribute to forming and solidifying beliefs that don't necessarily line up with the truth and the word of God, right? It's just a seedbed, right? All these things can cause us to believe lies about ourselves, about God, or about others. Listen, when we want to formulate change in our life, like, you know, God convicts and he brings about, um, you know, conviction, where do we typically start? We either typically try to change our experience right? How's that working for us? Like, you can't make somebody else do or not do something, right? Or we go straight to the behavior. If I will just stop such and such, if I will just do such and such, and we go to behavior to try to change our, our belief system and our, our spectrum on life. Most of us, whether we recognize it or not, live in this cycle of whatever we've experienced, we begin to believe. Like, we just start believing something. And it doesn't always measure up and line up with the Word of God. But it feels true, so we believe it's true. And because we believe those things are true, it will affect our expectations in life. Like what we just expect out of life. You know, if my experience was rejection and I believe no one's ever going to receive me, I'm always on the outside, right? Then my expectation is I'm never going to be received. So that affects behaviors. How am I going to behave? Well, I'm either going to reject you before you have an opportunity to reject me, or I'm going to constantly be in that victim place where I'm constantly being hurt, constantly being wounded, which then reinforces the experience because who wants to be around that? And so this vicious cycle continues. Here's what I want to say. As believers in Jesus Christ, God never intended for us to live solely out of our experience. He says to us, my, my kids will live by every word that comes forth out of the mouth of God. My kids are going to live by the Spirit, not by their circumstance. It's what we just read about Abraham. Abraham did not allow his circumstances to dictate what he believed about God, what he believed about himself, what he believed about his wife, what he believed about his future generations, what he believed about his destiny. He stood on the promise and the word of God 
Instead of allowing his circumstance, which was barrenness and old age and just feeling like I've missed it. And this is the place that God wants us to be. And I want to show you in Scripture, well, before we go to that, I want to, I want to talk about a couple other things. Where do we get, what influences our belief system? Life experiences, like I said. Family heritage. Our families mold our beliefs, whether we like it or not. We inherit the lies and beliefs from our families about life, politics, religion, education, relationships, finances, cultures, people, races, neighbors, right? Not proud to say it, but my family line was pretty prejudiced over some people groups. And if we're not careful, because of repetition, we will begin to pick up and own and adopt some of those things ourselves. We begin to form beliefs about ourselves over repetitive things that have been spoken over us over and over again. And I'm going to give you some examples um, in a little bit. Um, <clears throat> the sad thing is, is not only when there's repetition and we begin to pick up these ungodly belief systems, right? Those things, it would be great if they just died there, but like Rodney just walked us through, we teach what we've been taught, and we pass it on. So if I've got an ungodly belief that, all, that I'm just afraid of everything, without intending to, I can pass that on to my children and then get frustrated, right? Because they're afraid of everything. <clears throat> so I want to show you in Scripture how this actual cycle plays out because it's very, it's very scriptural. And I'm going to read a little bit of Scripture to you, and I'm going to walk through it um, with you. So hang with me because it's going to be a little bit. Don't fall asleep on me now. But I want to take us to um, Numbers 13 where uh, Moses is commanded by the Lord to, to call up the 12, right? And he calls up the leaders of these 12 tribes, and he says, okay, Lord says, we're going in, we're going to explore this land, and we're going to, we're going to see that he's, his promises are true. So he calls them all up, they go into the land, and I want to pick us up on uh, verse 26, and it says, they came back to Moses and Aaron, the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. But people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. Even, we even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. And all the ites. I'm not going to go through all those. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go in and take the, and possess the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. Here's what I want to say. Unbelief spreads. Belief spreads. <clears throat> So they spread a bad report. <clears throat> they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All people we saw there are at great size. We saw the Nephilim there. 
We seem like grasshoppers to our own eyes, and we look the same to them. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly um, said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land just to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Here's what I want to say about unbelief. Unbelief usually goes after leadership. Whether it's leadership of a home, whether it's leadership of a, a, you know, a, a business or a whatever, unbelief will usually go after its leader. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of whatever, who are among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because he and we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? What was he talking about there? Their unbelief was as contempt to the Lord. It was disrespectful to the Lord. It was an in-your-face, like you aren't who you say you are. You can't do what you say you've done. And it was contempt to the Lord. How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. And I love Moses. I love Caleb. I love Joshua. Because right there, they could have gone, yeah, smite them all. But they plead on their behalf for the Lord to have mercy. And the Lord says, now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children of the sin for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sins of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No, no one of them um, who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit, hear that, What spirit did Caleb and Joshua have? Belief. Because they had a different spirit, the Lord says, I just lost my place. Um, Hold on. Uh, I will bring him into the land, bring them into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out tomorrow um, toward the desert along the route of the Red Sea. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of this grumbling Israelites. 
So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, catch this, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. When we, there's a difference between, um, you know, like I said earlier, that centurion that says, Lord, I, I believe. Like, I believe I'm just wrestling and struggling to grab a hold of the concept and grab a hold of the reality of the truth that this is for me. God loves that wrestle with us. Like, he's patient. He's kind. He's, you know what? He's in it with us, you know. But when the Lord speaks something to us and we just go, yeah, not going to happen. Like, just not going to believe it. That is content to him. And um, the thing that I want to say about that is the very things that, that the, 12, the 10 spoke, God looks at them and says, those things that you spoke in that unbelief, there's fruit to that. There's power in our words. So even in that place of where we're trying to wrap our mind and, and trying to grab a hold of faith and trying to believe God, be very careful about what comes out of here because it matters. It matters. So I want to walk with you um, because I want, this to, I want us to tangibly see. Um, I'm going to find it here. I want us to tangibly see this played out in this cycle. So here we have 12, 12 that go in, and they have the same exact experience. Their experience was, right, that they were sent into the promised land. They saw the promised land. They saw that it was as God said it was, right? They saw the powerful people there, all 12 of them. They saw the fortified cities. They saw the many enemies, right? And there was some fear there. But the 10, the 10 in unbelief choose to start believing things that God didn't speak that the experience and circumstance were trying to scream at them. The fear, the, the, um, the magnitude of what they were seeing in front of them were, were also speaking. And they chose to believe that and walk in unbelief over what the Lord was saying. So some of the beliefs that they had were grasshoppers, not only in our eyes, but in their eyes. The Lord brought us here to fall by the sword. What? That's not what the Lord said. They're stronger than we are. We can't do it. The land we explored devours those living in it. Are any of those things what God said to them? So what were their expectations? We're going to be defeated. We're going to die. We won't or can't win. God won't come through. And we're not strong enough to take the land. So what do they do? that influences their behaviors. They start screaming, let's go back. Let's go back to slavery. It looks good. Let's get us a new leader. Let's jump ship and run. Let's go back to the bondage. Let's spread fear, right? Because it's not enough for just the 10 of us to be here. We want to take everybody with us. They rebel against the Lord. They start grumbling and complaining. How'd that work for them? But we have a very different picture with Joshua and Caleb. They have the exact same experience, exact same experience. But they chose belief. They chose to believe what God said. Take the land. We can certainly do it, Joshua and Caleb say. 
The land is exceedingly good. God will lead us into the land. God will give it to us. He will swallow them up. The Lord is with us. And as they begin to make that declaration of belief, their expectation is the Lord will deliver, that God will protect them, that they will win, that the land is ours. Like he said, they say it, this land is ours. God's already promised us. They expect that God's going with them. And they believe and expect that God's going to do a miraculous thing. They may not know exactly how, but belief begins to bring this embeddedment of expectation that God's going to come through and follow through. So that, those expectations begin to affect their behaviors. They're obedient, number one. It says in Scripture that the two stand up in front of the entire rest of the Israelite community. They all turn but the two. See, when we choose to believe God, it puts courage inside us that says, if he is for me, who can be against me? And it doesn't matter if everybody in this room is not with me. If he is with me, I'm not going to stop speaking the word of God. I'm not going to stop speaking the truth. So they stand against the entire crowd, and they testify to God's faithfulness. They just start reminding them. Their behavior is, hey, guys, let me remind you who God is, what he has said. And their behavior is that of faith. Okay, Lord, okay, what's our next move? And God begins to tell them, hey, pack it up. Let's go. We're moving them out here. We're going to walk around for 40 years. But hang in there, guys, because my promise will be fulfilled. I love this story because at the end of the story, a little bit later, I think it's in, um, like, Joshua 14 or 15, it says, here they are on the precipice of the promised land, and they're about to cross over, they're about to go in, and God says, wait, time out, guys, go find me Caleb and Joshua, go get me all their descendants, because they're going in first, and not only are they going in first, they're going to get the pick of the land, Why? Because they were faithful way back here 40 years ago when they couldn't see it. And literally were walking in the opposite direction of it. And they stayed faithful to believe God no matter what. And God rewards belief. He just does. We have a God that rewards belief. So that's all well and good, right, in, this, in Scripture, but... How does this look in our lives, like our practical daily lives? So you're going to learn more about me than you probably even care to. But <laughs> this literally transformed my life. Like this, getting this transformed my life. Because for much of my life, even as a believer, I allowed circumstances and experiences to dictate what I was going to believe was really true about what was in here or not. So... I'm going to just kind of list a few of my experiences, okay? So I enter into junior high school. Um, I was not raised in a Christian home, a godly home by any means. Um, I had a father that was a very violent alcoholic and very abusive to my mother and my brothers and, <clears throat> like, really abusive. And um, so I enter into school. I had five brothers. They were all alcoholics by the time they were 13, Rage and anger 
were the, the prevalent emotion in our home. So needless to say, I'm filled with fear because I'm just trying to get away from all that, right? But I enter into junior high school, and it's the first day of class, and I have this experience. I walk in the room, and it was back in the day when they would pull out the roll call, and they'd call you one by one. You know, Susie Johnson, blah, blah, blah. And the teacher, I'll never forget it, he literally was sitting at his desk with his glasses down like this, and without even looking up, he goes, Sherry Wood, mm, you're one of those kids. And I'm telling you right there, the enemy shot an arrow into my heart, and I started to believe some things. I started to believe right then and there that something was wrong with me, that God doesn't care about me, that I'm a problem, and I don't belong, and I'm not going to make it. See, because the majority of my brothers didn't make it through school. And so I start to believe these things. Well, because beliefs fuel our expectations, I started to expect to be rejected. I started to, be, to expect to be judged in every scenario I walked into. I started to expect everyone else to be received and me not. And those expectations fueled my behavior. So I became one of two things. In times that I had a little bit of security, I became a problem in class. Because out of that expectation, I thought, oh, Lord, you think my brothers were a problem? You just wait. And because I had that belief system, I started to be the problem. And, or I would, in my insecurity, start to be the class clown or shut down and try to be invisible. So I was like this whack-a-mole, like, who was popping up today? Like, you know? And those behaviors only reinforced, they only reinforced the rejection in that room because they had to call it out. Bad behavior is bad behavior, right? It's not their fault. Okay, here's another one. So I said my father was violent and angry, and he disciplined um, in anger. And so I began to believe that all authority is harsh and demanding, that if someone is angry, it's my fault. So literally, now we're talking years later, far removed from my parents' home, married, have kids, and I walk into a room, and if somebody in the room was angry, I'm searching myself trying to figure out what I did. And I may not even know the person. And I'm racking my brain going, they're mad at you. They don't even know you and they're mad at you. So that would fuel some behaviors. I started to, or some expectations. If something's wrong, I'm to blame. All authority is harsh and can't be trusted. So out of that expectation, I started to behave. No one's going to tell me what to do. If, it was going to, if, if I was going to be blamed, I might as well do what I want. Or hide and be fearful from authority. Just blend in, disappear. So <clears throat> here's another experience. I came in. Um, the Lord took me back to another experience where I came in crying because my brothers had hit me. And my parents' response typically would be this, because I had five of them. It was like, it was very rarely that I'd have bruises somewhere. My parents' response were, stop crying. 
or I'll give you something to cry about. So my, my belief system began to form, and I started to believe crying's not okay. The people I love can't handle my emotions. So out of those belief system, I started to expect that it's not okay to hurt, and people can't handle your pain. So I'll be the first to get angry so it doesn't hurt. No one will see me cry, which then just validates the nobody can handle your pain because now you don't have any, right? There's, there's no validation going on. Do you see where the experience is trying to dictate everything about what we walk out in life? But see, God comes and he says, I have a rhema word for you. I have, a, I have spoken my word in my word for you. And you're going to believe something. How about you decide? How about you resolve to believe me? And so I was like, okay, Lord, but you're going to have to show me how to do that. So literally, he took me back in my heart, in my mind's eye, right? I went, he took me back. Holy Spirit took me back to that junior high class. And I'm sitting in that class, and he says, okay, I know that was painful. But you started believing some things that weren't from me. How about you ask me now what I was speaking when you couldn't even hear me speak? Because even back then, I was speaking over you. And so I, did, I asked, Lord, here's what I was believing. I renounce it as a lie because I know now, you know, that it doesn't line up with your word. I don't care how it feels. So by faith, I'm going to renounce that lie. I'm not one of those kids, not in the way he said it. I'm not one of those troublemakers. I'm not one of those that don't belong. But I don't know what the truth is because it feels really true. And he said, okay, give it to me. So I gave it to him, and he said, now listen to what I have to say. And literally, in very few words, I was a wreck because he came and he spoke. I created you in your mother's womb. I had a purpose and a plan. It's for your good. And I will never reject you. And I'm always here. And for the first time, like I could have told you, I heard that hundreds of times sitting in a church. But in that moment, because he spoke it and I chose to believe it for the first time, it changed everything, everything. There was another time I was, um, I always, because of all that, raised in a house with five boys and being the youngest and constantly told, you know, the girls, you know, whatever, and, you know, you're ugly, you're a tomboy, you're this, you're that. I believe that stuff. And so now, sad to say, I get married and have my kids, and I'm doing the best I can, trying to survive, get through life, you know. But one day I was, um, I had really not noticed that I had this pattern, but one day I was getting dressed, and I had a habit of just kind of glancing up at the mirror real quick just to make sure, like, y'all people didn't see my hair, like, you know, everywhere. And 
This one day, I look up in the mirror and I start to run out because I don't, and I'm already in self-hatred, like, oh, you're ugly, you're this, you're that, you know. And I go to Tarn to run out the door and I, the Holy Spirit just stops me. And I hear him whisper, you're beautiful. And I literally, out of my mouth, I said, shut up. That's not true. And the Lord goes, uh, not, in a, not in a bad way, but he said, excuse me? And I heard the scripture, does the clay get to tell the potter? <laughs> and I stopped and he said, I want you to look in that mirror and I want you to ask me why what I just said to you is true. And I, literally, it, everything in me was railing to stand there and look in that mirror. And the Lord said, no, you're, you're going to stand here. So I like wrestle through, you know, two seconds in the mirror and look away and, and everything. And he said, the reason I think you're beautiful is because of Jesus in you. And I went, wow. Like, you see that? Like, you see it? And I heard it. I cannot explain to you, but I heard it for the first time. Like, I had heard it. You hear what I'm saying? Like, I'd heard it over and over again. But in that moment, in that encounter with the Lord, his truth, his word trumped those old experiences. And I had a choice to make in that time. Remember yesterday, we had the two kingdoms up there, and one of the most blessed blessings that God gave us with Jesus going to the cross is this place of choice. And I'm going to choose to either put that good seed in belief or unbelief. And something happened in that particular day where I went, you know what? If I'm going out, I'm going out believing you. If I'm going to wrestle, I'm going to wrestle to believe you. And the, my whole life changed. My whole life changed. So what about, let's look at another experience. What if your experience was lack? Like there just was... You just didn't have anything growing up, right? Maybe you're in that place now. What are some of the beliefs that you might be tempted to believe? Never enough. I never get anything. I never have anything. So my expectations would be what? I'm never going to have anything nice. Never going to have anything worth anything, right? So my behaviors become in one of two ways. Either I'm out there grabbing anything I can get, even to the point of probably theft, right? If I believe I'm lacking and you've got something that I want and there's no other way I'm believing I can attain it, or I'm going to start hoarding what I have, protect the little morsel that I have. The problem with that is you were created in the image of your maker, and he is a very generous God. And he has riches beyond our belief if we will believe him and partner with him. Listen, belief really matters. It matters to God. I just, I don't know how else to say it. Believing him matters. And some of us are stuck in cycles where we just, yeah, yeah, whatever. Oh, yeah, sure, you love me. But we're not believing it. 
we're really not believing him. And the creator of the universe is saying, what have I done to you that you wouldn't believe me? I get your circumstances. I, get, I saw it all. Would you let me in so that I can speak the healing, freedom, truth that you need to receive to move beyond this place, this stuck place? See, I was stuck in that unbelief. And he wants to come and speak truth to us to set us free. See, the, that scripture in John 8, 31 and 32, where it says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. That know there is not just, oh, yeah, 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 I know. Like I said earlier, right? Yeah, we know it. We hear it around here all the time. It is a intimate knowing. It is becoming one. That's, that's, it's actually a sexual term. It's that, that I'm just going to say it. Intercourse. It is the oneness with the word of God where, where I want my life to look like you don't know where God ends and where I begin or where I begin and God ends. I want to know him. I want to believe him to the extent that, that the words that I say are in agreement with him. The thoughts that I think are out of faith believing that he, what he says is true. See, it's that kind of knowing that sets us free. And that kind of knowing comes as the Holy Spirit breathes on the word of God and makes it come to life in that seedbed, in that soil of belief. So I want us to close our eyes because I'm pretty sure if you're breathing, you've had an experience or two that's dictated some things. And so we're just going to ask him now. Father, we give you full permission to bring to the surface any experience you want to deal with. Now listen, some of you are going to flood through your whole history. Ask him, Lord, isolate one. Isolate one experience that I had. And then just begin to ask him, Lord, what are the ungodly beliefs that I was tempted to partner with in light of that experience? What did I believe about myself that doesn't line up with what you think about me? What did I believe about others that you're not thinking about them? And Lord, what was I tempted to agree with in accusation toward you as a result of that experience? Now ask him for the grace to confess as sin your agreement with the ungodly belief. Because it's unbelief and it's producing something in our lives. Ask.
Ask him if there's anyone that contributed to forming the ungodly belief and release them right there. And on the basis of forgiveness, choose to forgive yourself for believing that lie. Now, just in your own heart, begin to renounce and break your agreement. Like, just plead the blood of Jesus over that ungodly belief in breaking its effects. Lord, we declare in Jesus' name, God, that those ungodly beliefs, God, are nullified by the blood of Jesus, that the effects and influence they've had on our life, God, stop today in Jesus' name. And now we ask you, Lord, to let the truth take root. What is the truth you want us to believe? Just ask him. In light of that experience, what did you want me to believe? What is most true about me, about the others involved, and about you, God? Father, we pray that the thought patterns and habits that were established around those ungodly beliefs would be annulled in Jesus' name, and that in its place, the fruit of believing truth would be our evidence, God, would be the new patterns, God, would be the new habits that we walk forward in, God. Father, we thank you for setting us free from the torment and the influence of those ungodly beliefs. There's one more thing that I want to do. I know that for some, like for me, that, like I could go back and isolate some of these individual experiences, but for me, it was an overall, um, it was like there was a spirit of unbelief that I was kind of trapped under. Like as much as I wanted to believe God, I just like couldn't make myself believe God. And so I would like to, do something, um, and this is going to require some courage on y'all's part. But if you feel like unbelief is a really big deal, like you saw the fruit that we had up here, the grumbling, the complaining, the torment, the, the um, you know, offense, and all of those things that we had up here. If you, when you looked at these two lists, if you fell more underneath the unbelief side, then I'm going to ask you to be really brave and stand up, and we're going to break the power of that spirit of unbelief over our life. So I'm going to count to three. If you want to receive from this prayer, stand to your feet. So I want all of us to repeat after me. Father, I come in the name of Jesus. 
I ask your forgiveness for unbelief, which has allowed the spirit of unbelief to torment me. The spirit of unbelief has robbed me of the faith you have given me. Lord, I come asking you to forgive me for letting the devil give me this unbelief. I confess the sins of any generations of unbelief in my family line and of any spiritual leader who has stood in a place of authority and confessed the days of miracles are over. Lord, forgiveness of sin is only part of your promise and your report. So I ask forgiveness for not believing the whole report of the Lord. I confess my unbelief as sin, and I ask you to heal me now of its effects. Deliver me from unbelief in Jesus' name. I come out of agreement with the spirit of unbelief, blindness, and deafness that has robbed me. I ask you, Father, to forgive me for hardening my heart and closing my ears and eyes to faith and belief. I ask you, Lord, to forgive me for the times I asked you to do something and you did not do it immediately and I lost hope. I ask you to forgive me for not hanging on to the seed of unbelief. And in Jesus' name, by your word, by faith, I thank you for the empowerment by your spirit to live a life of faith in your word. Thank you for setting me free from unbelief. I choose now to identify with you who is a believer. In Jesus' name, amen. You okay? Amen. Well, you're almost almost there. Just almost. Just see the bigger picture. Uh, God has got us on a journey. And in this journey, we're moving towards walking out our destiny for what God created us for. And this journey is going to require you to come into fullness. And that fullness is going to mean that you're going to come to the stature that we find in Jesus. It says in Ephesians 4.15, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him, 
who is the head, even Christ. So we have to come into a place of maturity. We have to grow up. And earlier in that Ephesians 4 passage, it talks about we come into the measure of the stature that we see in Jesus. So we actually come to a place where we look like him and reflect him. And in this process of maturity, it is the process as we move forward, cutting off the things of the old. In 1 Corinthians 13, which we call the, uh, the love chapter, we get down to verse 9, it says that we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall see fully, just as I have been fully known. He says, when I was a child, I basically, I, I lived like a child, thought like a child, I functioned like a child, and when the child do childish things, that's okay, right? Because they're children. And we said our expectations, basically where a child is, if they're a two-year-old, they can act like a two-year-old because they are a two-year-old. If they're a 10-year-old acting like a 2-year-old, that's not quite as, as acceptable. And as we grow on and grow up in maturity, we have to be able to cut off the things, like you said, put away childish things. Now, that word put away or do away with is the Greek word kartageo, and it basically means to reduce to inactivity, to render inoperative or powerless, to destroy, to to disengage or to exorcise, not exercise, but exorcise, you know, to cut it off, to, to get rid of it. And that particular word does, does imply struggle. It does imply struggle so that as we move forward with the Lord, we have to be able to cut off the things that would keep us tethered and stuck in certain places. And even though that we are to continue to have childlike faith and always come to God as a child, we are, to, we are to move out of being childish and immaturity and move into the full stature that we see in Jesus. So a part of the process is simply learning how to cut away or do away with the things that are no longer a part of us and who we are. So maturity is really the rate, you know, the, the, the rate in which... I come into maturity faster when I learn how to cut off the things of the old and put on the new. Now, the Ephesians 4 passage where it says that I simply, you know, take off the old and put on the new. So I have to learn how to discard the old because I just can't keep putting new stuff on without having discarded something. That's good. Come on. So I have to learn how to, how to discard, put aside and put away things. And in maturity is, is that process of doing that. So, maturity is not automatic. I mean, you can see it in the natural, right? I mean, just because somebody's old doesn't mean they're mature, right? Maturity is not how much you know. I mean, because you can have a lot of information and still not be mature. You don't grow into maturity just simply because you just take another class or read another book, you know? It's really going to be defined about character and how well you display the nature of Jesus in your life. How much you simply reflect him. That's what, what maturity basically, basically looks like. And so what happens is, is that as I'm moving forward, I get stuck and I get hung in certain places that keep me from going forward. 
And a lot of those places that keep me going forward are the things of the past that we simply have to be able to, to cut off. And so the question is, have you been able to cut off the effects of the past so that you can move forward into, into your destiny? Now, Mary mentioned last night, you know, she said there's like two types of wounding that we experience. You know, there was A and there's B. You know, A is the absence of, of the good things, and B is really the bad things that, that, we, that we encounter, the negative things that have really a positive effect. And so usually what happens, uh, a lot of churches may have like an inner healing ministry that basically focuses on the events. And the process that we deal with events, that we deal with, things that happened in our life that conditioned us was very well spelled out by what Sherry just then covered. Because basically all those current behaviors that we have now, you know, are reflecting the belief systems that we carry. And if they're negative belief systems, obviously I have been conditioned in that way. And there's somewhere, there's a lie that I have embraced. And even though I, even though I know, you know, I know it, I know that's not the truth, but it doesn't, like you said, like she said, it doesn't feel true. So I have to figure out what feels true, and that feel true is usually based upon, if, if it's a negative behavior, it's a lie. And so, you know, the process that we do is just like when, we, when she finished, it's like ask the Holy Spirit to basically take a person, you know, and by the way, you, know, you don't have any permission to look at your past ever apart from looking at it through the eyes of the cross. Okay? You just don't go back there. So you always, the Holy Spirit has to be the one who walks you back there. Don't be going back there without the Holy Spirit, all right? Don't be regurgitating stuff because all, all that may do is lead to condemnation, beating yourself up, and all that stuff. So you've got to have the Holy Spirit who's going to walk you through anything like that. And, you know, and of course, you know, just like when Sherry brought you through this process here, you're going to be looking at those things and those events because those are the things that have to be cut off so that you can go forward. They're, they're, they're your restraints. They're, they're, they're holding you back. So you have to deal with those things. The other thing that, that Mary talked about last night was the, really the absence. The absence that we didn't get what we, we, you know, that we really needed in order to grow, to mature, to come into that, and really to, to give us the capacity to be able to overcome the events that really, the things that we would face, things that life would throw at us. She gave the illustration about the, the woman. I'm just going to take that illustration to kind of expound on it a little bit and refer back to it. You know, just if you recall, she talked about the woman who, uh, and this could apply to a man. It doesn't matter, man or woman or father or mother, but the illustration she used, here, here's a woman who simply had a dad that was emotionally crippled who couldn't meet her needs growing up. He was just a good old boy, a really nice guy, good old boy, you know, probably a hard worker, may have been a workaholic. He just didn't have any time for her and didn't know how to relate to her. He was just emotionally handicapped. And so everybody else would say this is a good old boy. He wasn't a mean guy. He didn't beat her, didn't anything. He just was unavailable to her. So as she's growing up, there are certain things that she needs that only a daddy can give her. Things to affirm her, tell her she's important, that you're beautiful, you're precious. You know, it, his job was to protect her, to affirm her, to to speak those things in her that a father needs to speak into her life. But let's just say he just had no capacity at all, or just one on his radar. Maybe he just, the way he was raised, I don't know, for some reason he just couldn't do it. 
So now she grows up and she doesn't have that affirmation. She doesn't have all of that stuff that she needed growing up. And the pain that she's experiencing in the present is just as painful as if she had encountered some traumatic events because it feels the same. It feels the same. And if you have a life like that, you're, you're going you're you're to have a life full of memories of offense and all that stuff where he didn't come through. He was on a business trip on, his, on your birthday. He didn't get you a present. He wasn't there for your prom. I mean, it, it just, he, he just wasn't there. And so now you carry this pain inside. And one of the problems is, is that a lot of times... We, the way that we minister in churches is that we begin to develop an inner healing ministry that focuses upon those events and those lies and those things that basically come out of the, you know, the, 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 the things that happen to us. So she goes to the inner healing ministry in the church. And she gets, she has her, her all this history of offenses, so she's, there's no lack of offenses. She brings them up. She gets a little, she gets a little resolved. She feels good. She goes home. But you see, that void that was in there, that emptiness that is in there is still there. And it's still painful now. So that pain rises up again. So now, okay, now she makes another appointment for the inner healing ministry, goes in there, addresses a few more little issues that come to mind, Feels pretty resolved, goes home, but still, the real problem is that that void is still present. That emptiness that is still present. And that void needs to be filled. And sometimes people medicate and they fill that void with other things. But the truth is, that, that, that kind of pain is only going to be met in the midst of relationship with other believers. For her to receive what she would need from relationship. You see, you need to make the correct diagnosis to get the correct solution. And so the way that we overcome a lot of the, the things of lack, the things that we didn't get, the absence of what we really needed is that we have to get them really from two places. Number one, it's going to be in our walk and our relationship with God. And secondly, through, through life-giving relationships with other people. Learning how to live in the midst of community. Your capacity... To go through life experiences that all that life's going to throw at you, and that life's going to throw a lot of crap at you. We all agreement with that? I mean, you don't get the uh, struggle-free life. I mean, nobody, nobody gets that one. It doesn't exist. But your capacity to be able to get through all that life would throw at you is going to depend on how large your joy capacity is. In other words, how quickly can you return to joy? 
Now, you're, you're, you, you, we all have a joy bucket, but sometimes our joy bucket may be small or it may be large. And if you have a large joy bucket, then you can quickly re- return to joy regardless of what event happens into your life. Through all the tough, painful things that that you face, you know, if you have a large joy bucket, then you're able to quickly return to the place of joy and be able to overcome and face life. Life makes sense whenever you have a large joy bucket. But if you have a very small joy bucket, it doesn't take very much of what life throws at you to deplete what you have in your bucket. Joy, it can be defined many different ways. You know, just the way that the dictionary would define them as, you know, uh, you know, happy, pleasure, delight, bliss, such, or something like that. But joy is that thing that rises up really on the inside that basically gives you, that life flows out of. And it's something that you pursue. It's a decision that you make as you, as you decide to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to rejoice in this situation, but in that choice, then joy begins to flow up out of you. Joy is that feeling that it, it feels, it's that feeling that you feel like when somebody is glad to see you. I mean, you, 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 you get next to somebody who's glad to see you, and they look at you and they go, oh, hi. Oh, it's so good to see you. You know, glad you're here. I mean, what, what does that produce in you? Yeah. <laughs> but what if they looked at you, you know, they saw you and they go, oh, it's you. That doesn't push your joy button at all. So what happens, and when we're in the midst of an affirming community, an affirming situation that basically says, I am glad to see you. I'm glad you're here. I'm... Uh, you know, all of a sudden what happens, that actually enlarges our joy bucket. It creates that sense of greater capacity for joy. I mean, you know, if, if, if I were to look at you and I, you know, and I say, you know, you are, you are just absolutely amazing. You're so beautiful. You're so precious. I mean, you're just a princess. You know, I mean, like, if, 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 I, if I'm saying that to you, you're not going, oh. You know, unless you got a lie going on there, you know, but still, it, but there's something still penetrating right down to the spirit there. Because this actually, it, it, this, this thing goes right into the spirit. That's where, you know, you know, that's why the scripture talks about the way that we encourage one another and we build up one another. Let no, you know, unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, only that which is building, edifying, encouraging. And what is happening is that you're actually speaking life into somebody and you're enlarging their, their joy bucket. This is how God created the body of Christ to function. He created the body of Christ to function in a way that we would be bringing life to each other. Because a lot of times we grew up in a situation where we end up having a small joy bucket, and God wants to enlarge our joy bucket. And that's going to come in the midst of community. This is why in, in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, you know, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, you know, to, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. So in other words, one of the four disciplines that they devoted themselves was to fellowship. So fellowship actually has to be a discipline. Yes, 
It's a, it's, it's a discipline that you have to walk in, just like you read your Bible, just like you pray. You know, you, you have to discipline yourself for fellowship, which means you do it whether you feel like it or not. Because that fellowship, the way it's designed to do, is to bring life into you and to speak life into you. And if you've got a small joy bucket, you know, you, you need other people to help enlarge that particular joy bucket. That's, that's the way it works. And when joy is, is there, it just life seems to make sense. It just, it just makes sense. And when you have a large joy bucket, that means you have the capacity to overcome whatever pain is going to be coming in your direction. See, here's that woman's problem. She had a small joy bucket. I mean, her dad was not enlarging her joy bucket at all. Now, if, if she grew up in this atmosphere where her dad was doing that, saying, baby, I love you. You are amazing. You know, don't let anybody mistreat you. I'm here to protect you. You are a princess. You know, you are the be most beautiful thing on the world. I don't care what anybody else says, you know, or what you tell yourself. This, I mean, if he is doing that, and if he's always glad to see her, whenever she comes in the room, and also there's that big smile that comes on, on his face, I tell you what, her joy bucket is getting big. Oh, man, her joy bucket is getting big. And she can face a lot more traumas in life because whatever comes her way, she's got, she can return to joy quick because she's got a huge joy bucket. But what happens, because she has a small joy bucket, she can't return to joy very quickly. And so everything seems to take her out because it doesn't take much to empty the bucket. And just going to the inner healing ministry will take care of a lot of the events that took place in her life. But what's really going to get her through to the other side is going to be that larger joy bucket. And that happens in two places. One, in your relationship with your father. And second, in your relationship with people. Now, let me just say this about your relationship with the father. I'm talking about having an intimate relationship with him, seeing him as your papa, Abba, Father. I'm not, just, I'm not talking about just you just having morning quiet time. I'm talking about you have an intimate relationship with him, that you no longer think like an orphan, you no longer think like a slave, but you have this intimate relationship with him that you enjoy being with him because you know he enjoys being with you. And I know some of you think, I, I don't have that kind of intimate relationship with God. Well, I tell you what, you need that orphan thing broken off of you. Because <laughs> you're not an orphan. You're a son or a daughter. And you need to have how to walk in that intimate relationship. And so what happens is that you, you, as you walk in this intimate relationship with the Father, all of a sudden, you know, he's always glad to see you. Your joy bucket begins to, to enlarge. You know, Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. It carries you through. It gets you through. Paul the Apostle, I mean, he wrote the book of Philippians. We call it the book of joy. Where, where was he when he wrote that? Prison. You know, prison's not a happy place. <laughs> but you see, his joy did not come from where he was or his circumstances or, or the things that were happening around him. It came because of his relationship, his intimate relationship that he had with God as Father. A lot of the stuff we learn about, you know, seeing God as our Father, 
you know, comes from, from, from the writings of Paul. As he chose to, to live by relationship with people, as spiritual father, he did, he, you know, when issues come up, he didn't appeal to being an apostle. He appealed to being a father. He didn't say, you got to do this because I'm your apostle. He says, listen, guys, I'm, re- I'm relating to you as a father. So he understood this fathering relationship here with, with those people. So he actually helping to remove that spirit of orphanhood off of the people that he ministered to and that he connected with. But also he talked about no longer in Galatians 4, no longer slaves. You know, we are sons and daughters. We are co-heirs with Christ. And in talking about the spirit of adoption just resting on us. But we also need that relationship with other people. You know, one of the things I think the church is often lacking are legitimate spiritual moms and dads. Spiritual moms and dads. A lot of times people are old enough that they should be spiritual moms and dads, but they're actually just older brothers and older sisters. You know, a spiritual dad, basically, he encourages you all the way, and it doesn't matter when, if you surpass him. It doesn't matter if you, go, if you excel. If you're an older brother or sister, you know, you, you get up to them, then they push you back down. Because they're not really a mom or dad. They're actually a, just an older, older sibling. Come on, that's good. So we need a house full of those people in, uh, you know, in, in church that actually can give life, can, can, can be life-giving relationships, not life-taking relationships. So we need this, those life-giving relationships, you know, in the church. So God designed the church, the body of Christ, to be a place where people can connect in loving relationships and act out of love. I mean, how many times does, he, does God speak to us about living from love, operating from love? You know, they'll know they're Christians by our love. So that's the way the church is supposed, supposed to function. Now, in life, we, we, we have been trained by either the love relationships we have or the, or the, or the non-love relationships, the life-giving or the life-taking. And we develop bonds with people based upon really love or, or fear. Love bonds... Love bonds is when we basically have a relationship with somebody, connection with somebody, and the motivating factor is really the love of God. God's love. Now, in in a love bond, what is happening here is is that it's all about really who I am, closeness, intimacy, love, perseverance, things like this. And and it is, it's happens to be desire-driven because, you know, when I'm in a love relationship and a love bond, you know, what is happening there is, is that really who I truly am can come out because I know there's no, there's no rejection, there's no condemnation. You're not going to beat me up when I make a mistake or when I blow it. And I can express to you, you know, all of the, the, the good things and I can express to you all the bad things because I know that regardless, you're going to love me the same. That's a love bond. 
It's a place where my true identity can actually come forth. Because who I really am, you, in other words, you kind of help, even help to help nurture the people, pulling out the gold in, in people. And really who I am gets to, gets to come out. Now in a fear bond, what's different with the fear bond is that it's avoidance driven. In other words, I don't want to really be, be next to that person at all. You know, because in that place, there's, some, there's fear, there's humiliation, there is shame that is going on there. And, and what happens is that I can't share with you really what I, what's on my brain because I can, only, I can only share what I feel like you want to share or what is safe to share. And my, my true identity can't come out because I, what can only come out is, is the person that I think you want me to be. Or the person that it is safe for me to be when I'm around you. It is the another. So basically, my my relationship with you is about fear. There's fear going on there, and I and so I, I can't be me. I can't be the true me. I can't. My true self cannot come out. So therefore, I may not even know who I am because if that's all the kind of relationships you have, you don't know your true identity because nothing helped helped to pull it out of you except an, an identity that was given to you. Or an identity that you think you need to embrace in order to be acceptable to this person. It's avoidance driven because it's like, I don't want to be around that person. And when I get around that person, I get the shakes. Because I just don't want that, I don't want that. It's because it's, 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 it's about fear. So I'm not growing, I'm not, I'm not maturing in this. And, and really what is happening, I learn how to be deceitful. I learn how to pretend because I'm trying to be somebody who's acceptable to you. So what happens is, is that if we grew up in an environment like that, then we develop a fear-based identity. That's right. and, and then I take this fear-based identity, and I can't really connect with anybody because I've, I have this fear-based identity, so I can be, I can be staring at a life-giving relationship that is staring me in the face, but I can't really enter into that because I have a fear-based identity. Because I have kind of conditioned myself to live out of fear. And the person with that fear-based identity is not someone who can go deep into relationships, but really has to stay on the surface. And sometimes they actually think they're deep, but they're really shallow. Because they actually conditioned themselves to stay at a certain level because that is the safe place to go. And if I go any deeper and I share some of the deep stuff, all of a sudden I can't trust what you're going to do with that deep stuff. So I basically train myself. There's only so much I can do, so, so much I can share, and therefore the true me of who I really am can't come out so I feel crushed and I feel stifled because I developed a pattern of thinking Based on fear, not out of love. But perfect love casts out all fear. And God's trying to break us out of any of that, that fear-based identity, and move us into living, living from love. And sometimes I run away. You know, I run, I run away 
from relationships. Because I, I don't trust anybody. And a person who has, has that fear-based identity, those persons there, they probably, those have a very, a very small joy bucket. And they can't handle life and what life throws at them. And sometimes it just spirals them down into a, really to a, a pit of depression. Anybody relate to what I'm talking about here? And sometimes even when you get around the places of joy, it actually creates pain. Because it reminds them what they didn't get, just like that guy Mary was talking about last night. Who came to our house and we're like, you know, we're the funnest house in the world, you know, and he couldn't enter in. Because it kept reminding him of, the, of what he didn't have. You, you know some of those people, they, it's like you bring them to a party and, and they sit on the couch and they sulk. Like, what is the problem? This is a fun place. You, what is your issue? And they can't tell you because they don't know. Because they've not learned how to enter into joy. See, what we do, we tell those people there, it says, you need to hang in there. You need to hang, you stay with us now, okay? Don't you be running off. Don't be, don't be taking flight. You hang in there with us because God is trying to teach you how to enter into relationship with life-giving relationship so he can actually, you know, move your, your five-gallon bucket to a 50-gallon joy bucket. He's trying to give you that greater capacity. And when you have that greater capacity, you know, when you can return to joy very, very quickly, you can face a lot of hell that, that this world throws at you. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. So it's, it's getting them to come into those life-giving relationships. Now, a lot of times, if, if you've if you got that small joy bucket and you've got that fear-based identity, those people are usually pretty needy. And they suck the life out of you. But as a, as a, as a life-giving relationship, you know how to put boundaries and you know how to help them to walk in that and, and you know, what, what they can receive, what they can do, and you don't let them suck the life out. You actually, you know, teach them how to live life with other people, how to live in the midst of a relationship. People with a low, with a low, you know, people with a fear-based identity, they can't handle any feedback that's negative. Even if what you say is valid, and even if the way that you give it was like kind, they'll take it as rejection or criticism, or, an, or really as, as an attack. And they can be high-functioning in life but still be disabled because high-functioning means they can actually, you know, keep a job and, or have a good job and, you know, connect on the surface with other people there. But the, those people just simply can't go deep. And you throw them in a marriage. And they, if you can't go deep in a marriage, it's, it, it doesn't turn out too good. Or at least 
somebody's going to be in pain. Really, I think one of the points that I'm making is this. A lot of your healing is just going to come through the other members of the body of Christ. But if a fear bond, that's not the first place you run. You avoid. You avoid people. You avoid relationships. You avoid going deep. You avoid making friends or pursuing friends. But your healing is found in those relationships. The very thing you are avoiding is the very thing that will bring life into you. That's why we say it's a discipline that you just have to pursue and do it whether you feel like it or not. And if you run from relationships... You're running away from your healing and your wholeness. Somebody has a, like, it's very obvious they got, they got that fear-based identity. I mean, one of the questions you ask is this, who are you in relationship with? You got a small group you go to? Who are you, connect, who are you connected with? Who can you be really personable with? Who can you share life with? Who are you doing life together with? And then we try to get them into those places of connection and relationship, especially with spiritual moms and dads who actually can meet those needs that they never got, fill those areas of void that were never met because those needs just don't go away. So we push them into that. I want to take this just to the next step, to the next level. Because some people have fear-based identities, fear-based identities create fear-based environments in which they, those people themselves really create the environment that has stifled them they basically put it on others. Usually it's performance-based. But some of those people actually carry a spirit of oppression that you actually, and even though you may not have even grown up in a fear-based culture, there are certain people that they're just not safe to be around. They're oppressive. And some of you have relationships with those people in your life that you're actually under a spirit of oppression because there is a controlling spirit that's actually oppressing you. It could be a boss. It could be a spouse. It could be, you know, another person at work. It could be a family member. But you may have somebody in your life right now, like, 
I can't, I can't be myself around this person. I can't approach this person. I have to be somebody else when I'm around this person. I can't be who I really am because I, I don't trust this person. I don't know what they're going to do, how they're going to say, what they're going to say, you know, whether they're going to reject me or whatever. And so you feel like you're under oppression of that. And so this fear bond is, is really a fear bondage that you're under. And in this fear bondage that you're under, it's like I, I feel oppressed and pushed down, and I, I, I feel stifled, I feel crushed. I'm not able to come into who I really am because when I'm around this person here because they are simply untrustworthy, and I feel this oppression when I'm there. Because somebody who had a fear-based identity has now become really a perpetrator and impressing others and pushing everybody else or others around them into fear. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So what I want us to do, we can break that one off. So let's stand. You know, that somebody's kind of been under the spirit of Jezebel, this, we just, this is kind of the prayer we pray. Somebody who's an oppressing spirit. Somebody who's, who's dominating. Somebody who is pushing you down, controlling you, manipulating you. Somebody, and, and, and it's actually, there's a spirit involved. Not that you have received that, that spirit, but you may have even received that. If you, in other words, if your personality has shifted and changed, just being under that person's influence, therefore, there, there, there very well could be a spirit involved with that one there. But oftentimes, it may be that person that when you get around, you're actually feeling that spirit that's pushing and oppressing. Because, you know, God is not a God of fear, right? But the enemies are full of fear. And he's, 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 he's trying to get you to be, you know, to live by fear, to be, to, 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 you know, identify with fear and live by fear. And God's not about doing that because God has not given you a spirit of fear. And we can get free. Because that is illegal on your life. You understand? That's right. Come on. God is jealous for your destiny, and he wants to remove anything that is a lid or a constraint that's keeping you from going forward. Come on. That's good. And he will use other people as a lid or a constraint. And we're not going to take that anymore. Amen. So repeat after me. In Jesus' name, I choose to forgive this person. I break the power of their words off of me. I break the victim spirit off of me. I rebuke the fear of man that I've lived under. I break off of me the victim spirit. And I cancel my bond to them. I take back my true identity. I will not live under oppression. I will receive my Father's love. And I declare over myself, I am now free to live and to love.
You do not have to live in fear anymore. You don't have to live from fear anymore. And I know some of you have lived in there for so long you don't know how to receive love. And God would love to fix your receiver. So that when you stare at the life-giving relationships, you're not rejecting God's gift of life. But you can receive the gift of life that those life-giving relationships have. And you don't have to project on them all of that controlling mentality, questioning their motives if God is saying, listen, just let these people love you. Just let them love on you. You may have to work on some of those lies that Sherry talked about, like I'm not worthy of it. Okay? Break those lies. Check out your feelings whenever you enter into relationships. Because he's going to, in those life-giving relationships, he's going, to, he's going to expose all of those lies that you have been embracing. He's going to tear them apart. Those keep you from going forward. We got to cut off childish things cut off the things of the past cut off and move forward move forward you can't live in the past anymore you don't have permission to do that anymore you've got to move forward let's cut them off because there is a whole destiny that is in front of you that has a future and a hope that I hadn't seen, ear hadn't heard, all the things that God has prepared for those who love him. There's an amazing stuff that's right in front of you that is ahead of you, and the devil is trying to keep you from coming into it. So we're going to cut off the things of the past. Some of you are just going to be bringing truth to them. Some, you know, Holy Spirit will guide you on this journey so that you will move forward. We're just going to have a, a thing or two. I think a little worship or something. I don't know what all we're doing. I have no idea. Why don't you have to be seated? I have no idea what's next on the program and the agenda. All I know is there's a few other things that are going to be going on. When we finish today, when we finish today, you know, we're going to have this ministry team just up front for you to work through anything that has come up this these in the last day or so. I mean, if you got some offenses that you, you're in that cycle of offenses, you know, and, and you need somebody to help you walk you through that one, you know, just come on up. And I tell you what, you know, and, and maybe not everybody knows everything to do, but we got the Holy Spirit who's with us that we can invite him to see what, Lord, what do you want to do in this situation here? Because this is about your journey with the Holy Spirit, isn't it? So, Lord, I just want to I thank you for what you're doing in our lives, and I thank you for what you're doing here. And I thank you, Lord, for the freedom that you're bringing us into. Lord, teach us how to live and love, love relationships. And, Lord, help us to learn how to be lovers ourselves.
to flow out of love, to encourage, to build up, to speak life, teach us to be receivers of life. Thank you for the plans that you have for us. Plans, plans, Lord, that have a future, that have a hope. Thank you, Lord, that that is ahead of us. You're a great God, and you're in charge of our destiny. So we just say, Lord, whatever it takes, get us there. If you would, just for a